0: Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussions, news, and interviews, presenting The Film Scene with Ileana Douglas. Ileana is an actress, writer, author, and film historian with a need to discuss movies that borders on obsession. You'll learn the history of movies one great story at a time. The Film Scene is the deep cuts of movie podcasts, featuring movies we love by the people who made them. And now, Ileana Douglas. Why, hello. Welcome to The
1: Film Scene. I'm Ileana Douglas. I'm here with uh, my pal, virtually, Jeff Graham. Nice to see you, Jeff. Wait, I'm, I can't hear you sound-wise. Have you muted yourself? Okay. Um. Well, I'm here, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. We have uh, Sydney Stern on the show today. She wrote this awesome book, which is called uh, The Brothers Mankiewicz. We're going to get to that in a bit. We're going to answer some questions um before we do you know I always like to recommend uh, books and so because we're going to be talking about uh Joe Mankiewicz some of the people that uh, Joe and Herman Mankiewicz in this book a couple of the, I want to suggest this book which is by Kenneth Geist called Pictures Will Talk um this is like this was my first sort of understanding of Joe Mankiewicz so it was nice as a Companion piece. Um, This is a great read. Anne Baxter's intermission. She, of course, stars in All About Eve. And uh, people are almost on the verge of forgetting John Houseman. But this is an incredible book. Front and center, John Houseman worked with uh, Orson Welles early on and um, was part of Citizen Kane. His name comes up quite a bit in the book. So. Those are three books to um, to recommend. And now, let's get to a couple questions. Jeff, I saw some questions there.
0: Hey, this producer, Ryan, just popping in real quick. Somebody just happened with Jeff's audio, so we might need to take a second just to figure just that sw- out. Oh, there he is. You- there- okay. I guess uh, we're having some pandemic issues over here, but uh, how do I sound? Do I sound okay? Yeah, you sound good now. Okay, great. It's interesting. I have this new camera setup where you're over here, Liana, and yet- yep. It's like I have to be an actor where I'm like talking to a stand in. So I'm practicing my eye line. Um, Oh,
1: that's so interesting. Yeah, that happens quite a bit in movies sometimes where you can't look at the person.
0: Yes, I feel not, I'm not as talented as you, unfortunately. So I'm going to do my best to talk straight to this lens and know that I'm talking to you. But I'm going to read you this first question we have. Yes. Um, This comes from German Gutierrez, which, first of all, that's an incredible name. Uh, The question is Was there a lot of prep for the racquetball scene on Cape Fear? You looked like you can really hold your own on the court, by the way. Can you beat an N in a game?
1: Okay, I'm so excited you asked me this question. I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to answer this. No one's ever asked me this question. Um, You know, I went to acting school and you really, I mean, you super, super were prepared. And, of course, you know, when you're working with somebody like Martin Scorsese, Nick Nolte, you want to be at the top of your game. And so I was living in New York and I took racquetball lessons and I totally got into racquetball and I was so good at racquetball that when we went to to do the rehearsal, you know, I was kicking Nick Nolte's ass. I was like really, really good. And he didn't, you know, he hadn't played at all. And so I said to Marty, well, when, why? You know, it doesn't make sense. why should why should I have to lose? you know, if I'm really good, it wouldn't wouldn't it be kind of fun? Like I can beat him? and he and Marty put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Ileana, when you're star of the movie, that's when you get to win at racquetball. <laughs> so I had to downplay my game from that point on but the one exciting thing and I know somebody else had asked me a question about the dp freddie francis so I can loop these two together freddie francis who was a dp on many hammer horror films once they realized how good of a racquetball player I was they did in fact change the shot and they had me do something where I was going to be hitting, you know, the ball right sort of towards the camera, not literally hitting the ball, but hitting the racket into the camera. So we, there, we got to do a lot of kind of action-y uh, type sequences in that. And I, was re- and I played racquetball for quite a while after that at the YMCA in, uh, in New York City. I, I was really into it. So thanks for that question.
0: Ileana, do you like the sort of blocking choreographic elements of film acting? Or do you feel like your favorite thing is just being in a scene talking to your co-stars?
1: It depends on who the director is. You know, again, when you're working with somebody like Martin Scorsese or Gus Van Zandt did this quite a bit. uh, I, you know, they walk you through many of the scenes... Obviously in in a movie like Goodfellas, there's a lot of choreography. And as we were saying at the top of the show, you're not necessarily always looking at the actor, but once a director explains that to you and you're part of that process, it becomes really exciting. Another example of that was the movie Stir of Echoes, Mm -hmm. of doing the uh, hypnotizing scene. Uh, You know, I was never looking at Kevin Bacon, and again, for various, you know, we were doing various visual effects. So once the director kind of brings you into it, you understand it, you become part of it. And it, it, it's not an impediment. Where mm-hmm. it's confusing is where sometimes you come in, and I've said this before on the show, where they've completely choreographed something with your stand-in, And then they just come in and they go, okay, Eliani, you're going to be sitting here. You're going to be crossing over there. And then when you say, blah, 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 I want you to turn and do, and that, when it becomes inorganic, it becomes difficult.
0: It's probably like you, when you feel like the blocking is worked with through a director and it enhances the character, you get to talk about how and why the character is making these moves. That's when, as an actress, you can unlock something. Whereas if you're sort of, treated like a chess piece who has to just figure out like a robot how to get through the scene. That's when it's challenging.
1: That's true. And 99% of the time, when you have blocking that is inorganic uh, that's when you start to go up on your lines. That's when Mm. everything kind of falls apart. One of the worst things that can happen on a film set is when a director hasn't thought about the blocking of a scene and you all, and they clear the set and you're all there rehearsing it. And it suddenly feels completely dead, mm-hmm. and nobody can kind of figure out what is wrong. And the actors, everybody starts making suggestions, suddenly, the DP and the director, and it becomes really kind of chaos because, as you said, nothing, the lines are suddenly inorganic. They want you to uh, be in a certain place because, you know, that's where the lighting is or if they have to, you know, they'll save an hour by what they call block shooting. Have you ever heard of block shooting?
0: Yeah, that's when you're shooting in the same location non-chronologically,
1: right? The worst, that block shooting is the worst thing, is the hardest thing to do in movies, which it just means you may have five scenes say that take place in a courtroom would be yeah. a classic example over and you do all five scenes one way, one actor. And then maybe two days later, by the time they get to the judge, you don't even remember what the scene is about. A black shooting and, and in my opinion, when I have done it, it's never consistent, the performances yeah. aren't consistent and I never find that they actually save that much time. If it's a very small scene, you know, it works. Like, oh, okay, you've got two scenes, but when, they, when you've done this thing where it's multiple scenes, I can tell you from personal experience, it's a disaster.
0: Yeah, have you ever gotten to shoot anything chronologically? I know that's kind of the dream for actors would be to shoot in order because that's easier for you to you know, map the journey of your character, but it's very rare.
1: It's very rare. Uh, the only, I know that uh, Mar- M- Marty Scorsese, Mr. Scorsese, Marty, on Cape Fear, he, he very much, he did it. And for me, uh, I don't know about the other actors, but for my character, he did shoot. He wanted to make sure that, which thank God he did. So we did the bar scene first. And then my last scene was the rape assault scene. Wow. Um, And then I did the hospital scene, you know, the martini shot, Ileana. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, and thank God he did, he did that, but you know, people try to keep that in mind on grace of my heart. I I had to do all my sex scenes, like the first week (laughs) that was, that was really, I remember making out with multiple men and multiple in the, and, and it was, it was a little disconcerting. I, I <laughs> don't think it would be fun, but it was a little pre pandemic sure times.
0: I also bet Allison really handled that sensitively. She's such a thoughtful director, you know?
1: It, it was kind <laughs> of like, you know, it was my first nude scenes. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was in those days. You're, you know, you're young. And you figured, ah, what the hell? Different time. Take your clothes off. Why not? I'm glad I did it when I was young. Yeah. Well,
0: I believe our guest was just on a podcast with Allison Anders. We'll have to ask about that, like hours before this one. So I thought that's very fitting.
1: Oh, my God. That's amazing. Well, Allison and I talk uh, routinely during this pandemic. We're, you know, close friends. So uh, I keep up with people. It's important, too. I've been writing and a few days go by and I realize I haven't talked to a certain, to, a, to anybody. Yeah. So it's, I just it's time to kind of reach out and figure out where we are. Um, what is your reaction to the, to, the, the stay at home order going now <sighs> to August? It's, it's, kind
0: of it's tough. Out. I, uh, I mean, I have a good situation. I'm working right now and I am not living alone and still I feel like it's starting to get to me. So. I'm just thinking about you know people who are unemployed maybe don't have a big community around them and it's it's tough right now.
1: What do you saying? You know? what, what well, are you not saying? you. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's, yeah. it's true. I I mean it was sort of it reminded me of like you know when your parents promise you something and you say if you do the you know you do all your chores. And you do this, and you do this. You know, you'll we're, we'll go on that trip to Disney World, and then suddenly, two days before he's supposed to leave, they go, "Nah, sorry, we're not going to go."
0: It's a great comparison. I know they pulled the rug out from underneath us.
1: I they did because I was kind of gearing up to, you know, mask life and the gloves and what it was going to be like, and and then they <sighs> took it away. So I kind of I went into a little bit of a nosedive. I have to say, yeah. So, that was um, a disturbing for me, you know.
0: Well, it's we're gonna we're gonna get through it. We're gonna get through
1: it. All righty. So um, well, shall we bring on um, Sydney?
0: Let's do it.
1: I hope I answered the question. We'll do this every week. So if you have questions I didn't get to, I will. I'll get to them next week. So I wanna talk a little bit about uh, Sydney. She worked as a reporter uh, and a freelance writer for Fortune Magazine and Money. She worked also at uh, publications like the Scarsdale Inquirer and the New York Times. She was recently on uh, TCM, which I got to see um where our friends uh ben Ben mankowitz and i also my shout out to josh too of course i love josh and this is her book the brothers mankowitz hope heartbreak and hollywood classics we've been talking offline about this because i'm reading it this is where i am i'm like like three quarters of the way in, I know a little bit. I haven't read it. I know a little bit about what happened to them, but not from her point of view. She's going to fill me in on what happens to them. So, uh, hi everybody. Uh, let's uh, say hi to Sydney. Sydney, hello there. Hi, it's good to see you. Thank you, and thanks for writing this book. And I've been so enjoying it. Of course, I'm. Uh, I'm obsessed with the. Man- I'm obsessed with the Mankiewicz. This was the book, just as a funny, I pointed this out. Now, this book, Pictures Will Talk, which you mentioned a couple times in your Mm -hmm. book. This was the book that I was holding when I met, um, (laughs) when I was looping. No, not not Joe. when you met Joe. Oh, okay. I was working at the Brill Building, and I was going in to do looping for Martin Scorsese for The Last Temptation of Christ. And he saw this book and he said, he told me, he said, oh, that book is very negative. He said, you shouldn't be reading that book. There's another book. I'll get you another book. But then so, so Joe is again, one of our, you know, so later on when I met Joe, I told him that story. I said, Marty didn't approve of this book. So thank God you wrote your book, which is a little bit more flattering. Um, but of course, so what was your inspiration to write about the Mankowitz brothers? Did you did you know them? Were you friends?
2: No, although I had interviewed Frank Mankowitz for my Gloria Steinem biography. So he's the only Mankowitz I had ever talked to.
1: And, and he's Ben's, Ben Ben Mankowitz's father.
2: Yes, Josh and Ben. Yes. And they're about 12 years apart, just like Herman and Joe. They seem yeah. to just must be a Mankowitz thing. But no. Yeah. And because he was a Mankowitz, he was totally witty and fun, and I quoted him a lot, fortunately, positively. So then when I went back to interview him, he was friendly. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought Herman, it started with Herman. I thought Herman was the kind of the quintessential Hollywood golden age screenwriter who'd been something else, in this case, a journalist. A theater critic and a playwright and he went out to Hollywood to make a few bucks in this case to pay off a debt and got enraptured with the well, he, he got enmeshed in the golden handcuffs and never left and always wanted to and therefore hated himself for prostituting his talents and drank himself to death. So that's what I went in thinking it was and then A it wasn't that simple and B when I read the book you just showed, um, Joe's biography, I thought, hmm, it would be more interesting to do the two of them together.
1: I love, yeah, I love that idea. And because there's so much, I feel uh, obviously we know a lot more about Joe Mankiewicz, but Herman's uh, contributions are, are of course to Citizen Kane and other films are great.
2: Well, he also, he ended up as the Herman Mankiewicz fresh air fund for recruiting writers because once sound came in, he went out in 26 sound came in in 27. And so he went to New York to find some other writers, reporters and brought them out there and people attribute that group of writers that they sort of give them credit for that smart aleck tone that a lot of the thirties have. Yeah. The,
1: um, what are the, con- uh, you know, wh- what are the contrasts between, there was the age difference, but between Herman and Joe? Because they do seem very, very different. Well,
2: I've always found that when you're inside a group, you all look heterogeneous. And from the outside, you look homogeneous. They're bo- they were both smart. They were both witty. They were both ironic. And they both hated the movies and wanted to be writing theater. So that's what they had in common. But Herman was very tortured. He was a first child for about, well, he was a first child till his sister was born about five years later. And then Joe was born 12 years later. So they really did have different experiences with their father. And their father was a German immigrant and he picked on Herman terribly. And Herman was just um, pursued by demons and very self-destructive his whole life. Joe idolized Herman and Herman was really a father figure to Joe Mm
0: -hmm. for a
2: lot of years. And then eventually, but when Joe came out to Hollywood, which which was 1929, Joe was not even 20, but Herman brought him out. And um, Joe set about trying to make good. Joe was excited to be there. And it was only later that he then wanted to go back to New York and write more intellectual things. But Joe, had a good example in Herman and that and and what not to do and so he was always more disciplined, he did have gambling problems for a while, he got that under control, he um, drank very abstemiously, Herman really drank himself to death and died young and Joe was a much more disciplined person and if if I had to characterize him I'd sort of say Herman was hot and Joe was cold, Mm. you know,
1: yeah, there were, I mean, they're two, you know, completely fascinating, uh, I don't know, men.
0: Now, Can I ask Sydney quickly? Do you sure. feel like those distinctions of like the hot energy and the cold energy contributed to their specific styles of writing? No, no. I just mean as people, actually. But I'm wondering if that like, it's like, you know, the tone of Citizen Kane versus the tone of All About Eve, like if that showed up in their work.
2: I think in their work, first of all, it's hard to compare their work because Joe was so much more productive and wrote so many more films of merit. And because he directed them, we know what he intended for what he wrote. Whereas Herman never directed anything and wrote a lot of things that nobody knows about. I mean, he even wrote a lot of things we've never seen because they're lost in the mm-hmm. early days. But Herman's it, Herman's um, sense of humor to me is very, 1920s. It's very facetious. It sounds he is he was friends with people like Dorothy Parker and George S. Kaufman, and that's Herman's humor. But I, whereas Joe was a creature of well, let he was born in 1909, so yes, he was around in the 20s. But I think he surpassed it. And and Joe's work to me just has a lot more depth and sophistication and complication in his films. Citizen Kane was Partly because Herman was a political creature, which mm-hmm. by the way, as was Frank, and as are Josh and, and Ben to a large extent. He was obsessed with history, he was obsessed with politics, and Citizen Kane gave him a chance to uh, put a lot of politics into it. Whereas Joe was obsessed with theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all about Eve.
1: yeah, I, I I know. Says- Yeah. 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 He like he liked to write too. Sometimes, it's so some of the, some of the you know some of the, some of the lines and all about Eve, of course. Huh. And that movie has even grown in popularity, I think, from when I first saw it. You know, it, um, and the same with Citizen Kane. I I guess, although I know you said it. One, I know you said in the book, uh, Vertigo had finally surpassed it yes. as being considered the, the best movie. I was wondering if you could tell. I love this story about how Herman uh, originally met Orson Welles, how they got, how he got involved, and then the writing of Citizen Kane in in a full body cast. I didn't know that, that's, I don't wanna give too much away from the book, but that's such a great passage.
2: Well, and it's a very Herman story, like accidenting his way into history, kind of. Herman was, Herman was born in 1897. So in 1939, when he got kicked out of yet another studio, because besides um, drinking and gambling, he also was always getting himself fired. So in 1939, he had gotten fired from metro golden Mayor, and then he'd been hired for a little bit at Columbia, and he'd gotten himself fired from there. And so he decided to go back east and, and try to rejuvenate his journalism career, even though the money was not comparable at all. And on his way east, he was in a car accident and ended up back in L.A. in a full body cast in Traction. Now, sub, uh, before that, I'm not sure exactly what year, he had met this young amazing man, Orson Welles, who was born in, I'm pretty sure, 1915. So I guess he couldn't have been, I guess he he could have been Orson Welles' father, but not, you know, that would have been, he would have been 18 years old. Anyway, he thought Orson Welles was a fascinating guy and Orson Welles, meanwhile, was setting New York on fire with theater and um, acting and radio. he was a radio star. He wrote, he was, he's just amazing. And I must say, when I wrote that chapter, I had pages and pages and pages on Orson Welles, and I had to keep pushing it back down. No, 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 this book isn't about Orson Welles, but he just creeps out because he's so fascinating. So they had met in New York. And when Orson Welles came out to um, do a movie for RKO, he was 25 years old or less at that point. He had no experience in, in movies. And he had this amazing contract to write, produce, direct, and star in a movie with final cut approval. And this was, as I say, the unkindest cut of all to everyone out in Hollywood because they made their piece, or at least they rationalized their inability to control what they had written. Writers typically would write things and maybe it's the same today. It all gets changed and they have, they. They pour their heart and soul into something and then it just gets changed. Maybe you've had that happen too. But um, here's this young twerp who has no experience and he has what they've all feel they've sort of sold their soul for, which was, okay, I'm not gonna get control, but at least I'm making a lot of money and here comes this guy and he gets everything. So everyone was very hostile to him. And one of the few people who was not was Herman. So he came to visit Herman. And um, they just visit for a long time. At this point, Herman was living in a little house because one of the things his wife did to support them was when he would get fired, she'd rent out their house and move them to a little apartment and live off the rent. I mean, it was this <laughs> hand to mouth, it was feast or famine, I guess. So, anyway, they talked into the night because um, Orson Welles' first contract, a uh, first idea, did, um, which was Heart of Darkness, it was going to be the Joseph Conrad. Point of view, you know, like going into the jungle and everything. That wasn't working; it was too expensive. So they were brainstorming about what he could do, and they had this idea, which Herman had done a couple of movies in that way before, which was you start with a man's death and have, a, you know, all these different views of him, right? And and kaleidoscopically put together the story. And they had a lot of different ideas, and they finally came back to. Um, William Randolph Hearst, who Herman had known, Herman had visited at San Simeon, and Herman had been fascinated with for years because he was an old newspaper man. And so that's how they got to the topic and how they got to the approach. Because he had such a drinking problem, they decided Herman, oh, and then what happened was they were running out of time. And while Orson Welles was a wonderful editor, he was not as good at first drafts, or, nor was he an experienced screenwriter. So it sort of evolved, it it didn't start out the way, but it evolved that Herman would write the first draft, the script, and then Orson Welles would work on it. And for reasons I really don't know, Herman then decided, insisted that um, Orson Welles hire John Hausman, who he had worked with for years, to edit and work with him. And at that point, Orson Welles and Hausman were at odds and not speaking. So Herman had a way of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And I don't know whether he laid on that condition as yet another way to get out of doing something that would have been wonderful. But um, Orson Welles convinced John Houseman to do it. And they went out to a resort in the desert, in the high desert, to keep Herman away from temptation. And that's sort of the creation myth of Citizen Kane. And there's
1: a photograph,
2: I mean, which is
1: great. And one of the things I love about your book is that you build these little threads from the very beginning to show absolutely that Herman Mankiewicz was the definitive screenwriter for Citizen Kane. You know where?
2: Well, uh, yes. That's I suppose it's the most controversial part of the book because there are people who just hate any claims for. For Orson Welles. Those are sort of, that's the Mankiewicz camp. And and in fact, one relative of theirs who I uh, called to interview said, well, I have to give you a test first. I have to know who you think wrote Citizen Kane before I'll talk to you.
1: Well, that's funny.
2: Yeah, I was. And I was at the beginning of the research and I said, well, you know, I don't know what I think yet. I haven't really looked at all the scripts and the drafts and everything. But what I will say is, even no matter what Herman wrote, it is the iconic movie it is because of Orson Welles. And I wouldn't even, no matter what a, a, a adherent of Herman I am, it, it's Orson Welles movie. And so, but he talked to me anyway, that was an acceptable answer. And I do wanna
0: ask though, oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt Sydney. That's okay. I was just gonna, one of the themes that comes up often on this show is the fact that sometimes these charismatic wunderkind directors May get overcredited for the films that they're associated with, and we talked about this a bit with Hitchcock and you know Joan Harrison, um, and even I think nowadays sometimes studios will position or market films based on the genius of a Wonderkin director when there's a ton of other above-the-line talent that makes these movies happen. Do you feel like maybe that's the case a bit with Citizen Kane and Orson Welles?
2: Well, yes and no, because I mean we, I, I could should bring up the Pauline Kael. Book. Pauline Kael, a very renowned and controversial New Yorker critic, the, the movie critic, was asked to do a foreword in 1970, she was asked, and, and it came out in 71, they were going to reprint the script of Citizen Kane. And she used that opportunity to write this really long, I think it was 50,000 words, it ran in two complete New Yorkers in February of 1971. Basically, taking all the credit away from Orson Welles, and saying that it was it was, Herman wrote it all, and it was a wonderful example of a studio production, meaning all those other people, and um, Orson Welles was kind of a credit hog. But he, I think it again, it's his genius. If you read, I mean, I guess you can't see, but I have I have a whole Orson Welles section here of yes. the biographies and and and. Citizen Kane books and so forth. Many, many, many trees have given their lives for Orson Welles and and Citizen Kane. And I think that it is both a wonderful example of fine talent at the studio, the cinematographer, obviously, the sound, the music, et cetera. But it's also unique and special in the way that Orson Welles was also over the years I read criticisms of him as an actor. Some people think he was fabulous and some don't. I mean, you know, it's
1: opinions. Well, I know, for instance, in the movie The Third Man, he takes credit for writing a particular scene where he talks about the invention of the cuckoo clock. There's a very famous scene on the carousel with Joseph Cotton. Now, he takes complete credit for having written that scene. we don't really know. It's the director is Carol Reed, and he also takes credit for a shot in the film. Um, so you know, one uh, one doesn't know, and it's the same thing where some people say that's not necessarily true. Uh, Carol Reed was an incre- himself again, an incredible director who could have come up with various shots, right. but movies are tricky that way.
2: They are, and he did have a history of sort of credit stealing. (laughs) um, His very famous broadcast, War of the Worlds, you know, when people thought the Martians had landed. Yeah. He said he had written that, and he really hadn't. It was Howard Koch, I think it's Koch. I don't know how to pronounce it, but K-O-C-H. Yeah. And he had the notes and the dictation to prove it, and so this was all going on just while he was making Citizen Kane and um, a, an academic was writing a book about it. And he both threatened him, He first he asserted, I really wrote it, and then he said, you'll ruin my reputation. So yeah, he did overreach, but I would still give him credit. There's a scholar, Robert Carringer, who I think really sat there and counted words from the draft, the American, as it was called, that Herman turned in versus the finished movie. And, it, and Herman's original words account for about 60%. Plus he was, back on salary as they had to reduce it by about half. So he rewrote a lot of words.
1: Yeah, and now in the end, did they share credit? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, the, the to me, the fairest thing is they basically shared credit. Yeah. You know, yeah. somebody wrote one thing, uh, somebody did another, and Orson Welles, clearly as the producer director, you know, it's his vision that puts it all together.
2: Um, yes, and it did. I mean, Herman visited the set some and he was overwhelmed at the um, new things Wells was doing, but he was also nervous that they wouldn't be well received. So he saw, and that's, I think, as he saw it emerging, that's when he started fighting for credit too. Tricky. He, well, he yeah. had
1: signed a contract, right, giving away his credit.
2: Yeah, but there's well there's credit and copyright ownership there's sort of all these complicated things so it got really complicated. They um Orson Welles' lawyer had structured it so that Herman had no claim and he thought he was fooling Herman, but Herman had worked always worked like that. I mean, when you are a studio employee, the studio has the rights to your words. You do not have the copyright. So Herman understood that, but credit was different from copyright. And so then he decided to fight it.
1: I think the directors have a tendency to take a lot of credit. (laughs) Right. They're gods. I I could cite examples, but sometimes you go, you know, that was written. uh, These are all jokes that then Joe Mankiewicz makes fun of in All About Eve with Betty Day, you know, saying uh, that the when does the actress think it's her words and not the words of the playwright. Um, Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, our Joe. So while he's writing, while Herman is writing um, Citizen Kane around the same area, Joe is a producer. He's working with Joan Crawford, uh, Catherine Hepburn and then eventually at what at what point does he start to transition to being his own writer director
2: well when he came to MGM which was 1934 he immediately had several successes including Manhattan melodrama which turned out to be not you know it's good to be smart it's even better to be lucky and that's when john dillinger was shot leaving manhattan melodrama for about the third time or something. So that put it into the history books and revived it. and everything. So at some point after three hits, he went to Louis B. Mayer and said, I'd really like to direct the, the screenplays I'm writing so they can be what I envision instead of what comes out. And Mayer said, you need to learn to crawl before you can walk. You, I wanna make you a producer. And Joe hated being a producer. He, he also said that was the best definition of producing he ever heard and he was he called the years when he was a producer which was basically i think 37 36 or 37 to 42 his black years he was miserable um, that said he because partly he was he was always a writer at heart even with all the directing he directed to protect what he had written what he wrote was what he envisioned he he was however able to keep forcing the writers to rewrite the films that he was producing till he got what he wanted. And he certainly did write for them somewhat, but he was not allowed to have credit. And that really bothered him. Even though he would say he didn't care about awards, he cared very much. So he was more outward directed than Herman, by the way, getting back to a difference between them. But he, um, his old boss called him a pencil picking up producer. You know, he would- <laughs> get in there. So, I mean, some of the movies he produced, the Philadelphia story, woman of the year in which Catherine Hepburn and, and and Spencer Tracy played together for the first
1: time and he had
2: introduced them. So that's,
1: and that's that's a rather famous story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where he, you know, and he was very involved with, uh, Joan Crawford, obviously kind of trying to shift and shape her career. Um, Right, he had an affair with her. He
2: had, I mean, he was always in love and he was almost always married, but he was also almost usually involved with at least one star. The Joan Crawford um, affair wasn't very long, but then he was asked to produce her movies and he really didn't produce anything that she loved very much, but he did try to help her. And with Katherine Hepburn, (laughs) Evidently, they were walking and he was with Catherine Hepburn and he was an old friend of Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy is the godfather of one of his kids. I mean, they were they were old friends in, in early Hollywood together. and But Catherine Hepburn had asked for Spencer Tracy. She wanted him to be in that movie, uh, Woman of the Year. And when they met, she looked at him and she wore um, high heels. She liked, liked to be tall and intimidating. And she said, "Mr. Tracy, I think you're a bit short for me." And and Joe said, "Don't worry, she'll he'll cut you down to size." <laughs> and I think that's what all their movies are always about: cutting Katherine Hepburn down to size. You know.
1: Yeah, he was, um, and he the 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 own the little bit of a controversy. This now this was the director George Stevens, and didn't he tack on a different ending of the film, which yes. sort of became more famous than the film? But the writers weren't. Happy about that?
2: It was just on this. I just saw it on TCM. Oh,
1: really? How funny!
2: Right, and I hadn't watched the beginning, but we tuned in at the end, and I don't think my husband, who's seen a ton of movies, had seen it. He was just laughing hysterically at the end, and I'm going, "But no, no, it's a bad ending. You're not supposed to
1: be laughing." Very funny. (laughs) It's, It's a very funny ending, but it weirdly does undercut. Yeah. The entire film. But, you know, I think the reason it worked is because Catherine Hepburn, to me, always is is very humorless. You know, it's very hard for her to- That's a
2: good point, yeah.
1: You know, poking fun at her own image, I think is what makes the scene work. And, Mm. you know, it's a very, George Stevens was a great comedy director. Yeah. Yeah,
2: well, yes, the the writers were an unknown pair who Catherine Hepburn got, I think, $100,000 for some incredible amount. And it was Ring Lardner Jr. And um, now I'm blanking on the other. Oh, it was um, Kanan, Michael Canaan. And they were unknown. And Joe thought it might be like Ben Hecht and Charles McCarthy or somebody who had a contract somewhere else because Catherine Hepburn got them the money before she would tell who it was. And they were so angry, they wouldn't speak to Joe after they tacked that on. Although there is wording who, where Spencer Tracy says, no, of course you should go back to work when she's going to give it all up to be his wife, which is annoying and ridiculous. <laughs> but it gets lost. That message gets lost in the take her down, you know, Yeah. tame that through,
0: right.
1: Um, I want to talk about a, uh, one of my. It's one of his early films, but it's actually one of my favorite films. He worked with Gene Tierney. He did Dragon Wick, but then The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. I actually think is one of his best films. I love Even it. I know all about You know, there's some, but the go The Ghost of Mrs. Muir is a beautifully written romantic mm-hmm. film, and he is the. He just seems. It, it's one of my favorite Gene Tierney performances. He thought she was really helped
2: by Rex Harrison. You mm-hmm. know, the the, the the quality of Rex Harrison's acting helped bring hers up a level.
1: Yeah, grounded her. Yes. Um, and he continued to work with Rex Harrison quite a bit until the end of his career. Right. They did four movies together. I don't know
2: whether any director directed Harrison in four movies or not, but he was a, Joe called him a Stradivarius. He was such an exquisite actor. I, But he was one of the most loathsome repellent people as people I've ever read about. He was quite horrible, um, including two women who committed suicide basically over him. <laughs> must have had something, I, you know. Yeah. I, Oh, I mean he was he was a wonderful actor. And in fact, with sleuth, when they were casting Sleuth, which eventually was Lawrence Olivia and Michael Kane, yeah, about for three minutes they considered Rex Harrison, but he had promised Rosemary, his wife, and his agent, never, never again would he direct Rex Harrison. So um
1: so, so he does that, and then of course, then Letter to Three Wives. This is his incredible winning streak. Back-to-back Oscar wins for *Letter to Three Wives* and *All About
0: Eve*—what
1: mm-hmm. uh, a streak he was on! I love that one.
2: I love *Letter to Three Wives* too, and it was nominated. I mean, um, *All About Eve* won Best Picture, but *Letter to Three Wives* was was nominated as as Best Picture for an Oscar, which is a huge honor for a
1: comedy. It's it's usually, and that's again, it's a he he works so well with with women and George Cukor has this uh, reputation of being a a woman's director. But Joe Mankiewicz, you know, sometimes not all the films are successful, but he works very, very well with women always, Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, Yes. Linda Darnell was another paramour of his.
2: That's when that affair started during A Letter to Three Wives. So let's see, 1949, Joe was 40 when it came out and Linda Darnell was about 24 or 25 but she'd been in movies for 10 years but you know she was she was sort of like Judy Garland with whom he Joe had an affair also sort of like Judy Garland light she had a, a stage mother and a horrible family background and was pretty messed up and he tried to have, get her into therapy too. The- that was one of those things.
1: <laughs> he, as I wrote about in my book, he, that's what he said to me. All, all women want to be told who they are. And uh, that made a lasting impression on me because I, I, to a certain extent, I thought it was true. It's very old fashioned, but, um, but I, I understood that from coming from somebody like him. Um, so after All About Eve... Does it? You know, he makes such a variety of films. What everybody sort of knows, what I know about Joe Mankowitz is, is you know, he made Cleopatra in 1960 and had a nervous breakdown and struggled to regain his footing and never really. Is, is that the sort of somewhat accurate? I haven't. I'm halfway through the book, so I don't.
2: Yes, I don't it know. is. I mean, it sounds so melodramatic, but it was such a horrible experience and. He didn't even want to take the, the the assignment. It was this was in 1959 when the studio system was really struggling, and they were imagining that Cleopatra would save 20th Century Fox, and so Joe was begged by the head of 20th Century Fox, "Please rescue this project and take it on, so you can rescue Cleopatra, which will then rescue 20th Century Fox." And Joe really didn't want to. A spectacle movie is totally not Joe's kind of movie. And he talked to his therapist about it. And his agent was saying, just hold your nose for 15 weeks and take the money and run. So three years later, wow. <laughs> it came out. Uh, by then, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton were an item. And he Joe was a broken man. He had been shooting up. What happened? I mean, the big reason that it was such a, train wreck was that Elizabeth Taylor got a huge contract. And in their ignorance and craziness, the board of directors of Twentieth Century Fox, et cetera, insisted they start shooting before they had a finished script. So instead of doing all the scenes that in one place, they had to keep Joe was writing during the day, writing at night and directing during the day. And it was so there was huge waste. Plus they moved from England where they started shooting because Taylor wanted to avoid taxes in the United States. Then she had life-threatening illness and moved back, they moved everything back to the States. Then they moved to Italy. So it was just a mess. And Joe was publicly fired after finishing and and held to, blamed for it, which it was totally the opposite. He'd been begging um, 20th Century Fox all the time, please let me stop and finish the script first. So it was just tragic and yeah. his ego couldn't take it. I mean, he really was blocked for years and years.
1: Yes, yeah, so after that, yeah, he, um, and when I met him, which would have been in the mid-90s, uh-huh. you know, he was, that's, he, that's what he was saying, was his career when he was, he, you know, he'd asked um, Marty how old he was, when Marty said he was 50, he said, yeah, that's when my career ended you know cleopatra he 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 developed um yeah condition on his hands i mean it was
2: well that he always he often had that i mean you i have a i think the pictures in the book of him directing julius caesar in 1952ish and he has white gloves on because he got eczema on his hands from nerves but he was um a broken man and then after sleuth which came out in 1972, which means he was 63, a lot of other offers came his way. But finally, his son Tom figured out he wanted to go out on top. He couldn't stand another failure. So, because Sleuth was a success, he kept thinking he was gonna do more, but he never did. Yeah,
1: I think he was in the era when, you know, the 90s, even then, we were on the cusp of, film you know film resurgence there it just was right on the cusp had, had he lived a little bit longer you know I think he would have been more more celebrated. Um I mean already we're sort of starting to forget it's as if Betty Davis's fame and all about Eve eclipsed now yeah. the person who wrote it and, and directed it. Um, We only have a little bit of time left. So I wanted to talk about, what do you think the lasting legacy is of both Herman Mankiewicz and Joe Mankiewicz?
2: Whoa, okay, let's see. First of all, one of the things I've been doing lately is is people have been asking for film recommendations for, because we're all at home watching films on movies. And I was trying to think what high comedy is made now. It just isn't. The, the the kinds of movies that Joe wrote, the All About Eve, A Letter to Three Wives, the sophisticated comedies, that's yep. sort of a genre of the past. There's romantic comedies, but there aren't those. And I love those. Right. So, so I would say Joe was um, a master of those. And his best movies were those, except for No Way Out, which was dramatic. It was Sidney Poitier's film debut and he was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, Hermans, I mean, he's remembered for Citizen Kane. It's a certain kind of humor in his other movies, that wittiness that I don't think he left as much of an imprint on movies. He definitely didn't as much as Joe, but he left an imprint as a man. And
1: I, I think so too, you're right. That kind of, you know, the idea we have of the rascal, drunken report, you know, stu- great stories and irascible. Um, and the, when you were on TCM recently, you got to speak to the kids, to all the children of the man it's yeah. it's that must've been really fun.
2: It's fun. And it's also touching for me because I've dwelt, in the land of their, their grandparents, basically, on the, on the Herman side. Alex Mankiewicz is Joe's daughter, so she really did experience him as a father. But for Ben and Josh and their cousins, most of whom I've met, I kind of felt like I was looking down on them from Herman and his wife and saying, look what we did. You know, We left behind this wonderful dynasty. I mean, I'm of their time, and yet I felt like I was coming forward in time and traveling time. That's
1: true. So so many of the children have become screenwriters, Tom Mankowitz, uh John Mankowitz, oh. you know, um you know, so Josh is a reporter. So it's the, the legacy. Mm-hmm. Jo, and Joanna Mankowitz also, another Mankowitz was a writer.
2: Yes, she wrote, she published a novel um in her 30s. That was Joanna Davis. Joanna Mankiewicz Davis. Yeah,
1: so all, so all, you know, all of them is quite like, see, do you have a favorite Joe Mankiewicz movie? What's your favorite?
2: I, I'd say all about even A Letter to Three Wives are tied, but it's sort of like picking a favorite child because I love those last five or six that he did at 20th Century Fox. I love Five Fingers, the spy story that is yeah. not as well known. People will talk as pretty talky. People have different, Different opinions about that, but I love those three, particularly.
1: Yes, that would be my one. I mean, I love him, but that—that's my one slight critique. Is sometimes Joe gets a little. He loves the word. He loves words. You know, he gets, he gets very, you know, and he definitely had a certain idea, a certain fantasy about women. You know, as expressed in all about Eve when Betty Davis says, "Oh, you can't go to bed with your clippings and." you know, things like that. He had certain ideas about, about that, even though he got involved with all these actresses, he was always inserting uh, that philosophy. You yeah, know.
2: it's an interesting contrast because he really saw women, and although he wouldn't have used the word oppressed, he understood how they had to maneuver through a system to make themselves seen and heard.
1: I think having met him, he was definitely more interested Um, in women, you know, I mean, he was, he talked a little bit with, you know, Marty about directing, but he was much more interested in me. And again, what was so interesting about the relationship he had with his wife was her complete acceptance. You know, it's very hard to marry a woman that is a complete understanding of like, oh, well, there's Joe, he's gonna completely fall over. Yeah.
2: The wife you met, Rosemary, he had had an affair with for years while he was still married to his second wife, and she told me, "Well, I kept him on a tight leash,
1: <laughs> so she watched out." Well, luckily he was in his 80s when I yeah. met him, so but but he still had the piercing blue eyes, so uh, I said, "I mean, I I said, yeah, I could totally." I mean, within two minutes, I said, "Yeah." Judy Garland I mean all, I can right. totally see he was very very smooth I I I understood why he was a ladies man and uh-huh. there's so few good ladies men left
2: I guess not
1: <laughs> you know that have that kind of charm and sophistication um anyway Sydney, it's been so great ha- having you on the show here I am having so much fun reading your book and uh as I said, I'm sort of halfway through, so I can't wait. I, I wanted. I was like, "Well, should I read fast and skip around?" I'm having so much fun reading it. That um, uh, where are you? I'm right at. I'm at breaking away. So oh. it, it's after all about Eve. So we're going to go into uh, Guys and Dolls, and which is he this musical that he that he did, which is so right. Different uh, than some of his. And we're going to see what happened to Herman. Um, oh, Herman. Okay, right. Herman's still alive. Okay. Herman's still alive. His uh, famous speech to the DGA. We're going to get to that. Which you know. So there's a, a lot, a lot more. But uh, there's. Uh, it, it's a great, great read, and anybody Here. who loves movies will will love it. Thank um, you. Uh, and uh, well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'll be. I'll be hitting you up offline just for, as I, as I continue in the book. Please
2: do. Please do. That's really fun.
1: All righty, Sydney. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and Jeff, great to see you.
0: Great to see you too, Sydney. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And as we end our show, as we always say, everyone's life is like a movie with a beginning, a middle and an end. Today was like a Joe Mankiewicz, Herman Mankiewicz movie. So <laughs> I hope they're smiling down on us, Joe. I hope you enjoyed the show and everyone have a great day. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you. So long.
1: From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to
0: thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.